Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash CNN for a $1 per month trial. People as they walk, just discarding their shoes. A few weeks ago, we told you about the Darien Gap, the remote section of jungle that connects Colombia and Panama. And so many of the people that we'd spoken to on the way are complaining about how this was nothing like the easy route they were promised. And CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh told me why migrants from all over the world are willing to risk their lives on the route, in some cases their children's lives, just to get one step closer to America. But what really stood out to me from that conversation was just how far those migrants still had to go after they emerged from the jungle. Thousands of miles separate the end of the Darien Gap and the doorstep of America at the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, this week, officials are expecting a surge of humanity at that doorstep as the emergency order known as Title 42 officially comes to an end. And if you looked at the streets of El Paso, Texas, it seems like that surge is already here. My guest this week is CNN's Rosa Flores. She's based in Texas and has spent much of the last year talking to migrants and border officials about what a post-Title 42 world looks like and why the impacts will be felt well beyond the border. From CNN, this is One Thing. I'm David Ryan. Rosa, can you remind us quickly about Title 42 and how we got to this point where it's about to come to an end? Yeah, so we really have to go back to the pandemic and the Trump administration. So back in March of 2020, the CDC invoked a public health order known as Title 42. A lot of us know it very well now. And this was to stop the spread of COVID-19. And what the order did was it allowed immigration agents to swiftly return some migrants to Mexico. Now, it was very controversial from the get-go. Immigration advocates accused the Trump administration at the time of using this order to keep migrants out of the country. And these advocates were very surprised when candidate Biden vowed to end this policy and then expanded it and relied on it as president. So there's a lot of controversy. Mm, he kept it going. Yeah, exactly. And he, and he relied on it to manage the border. And that really made a lot of his allies on the border very upset. Now, Title 42 also got stuck in the courts for a really long time. There were various court cases. The Supreme Court got involved. And really, this was also used by politicians like a political piñata. And David, the reason why I call it a piñata, if you know anything about piñatas, you swing at the piñata and you expect a treat. And that's really what politicians have been using Title 42 for. They've been swinging at it and they expect some political benefit. And we've seen this over and over and over again, right? So now what's different is that the national emergency for COVID-19 is ending on May 11th. And that's when we're expecting Title 42 to end. So what does that mean for the border communities like the one you're in now, El Paso? You know, there is so much tension and worry, David, on both sides of the border, really. And again, the headline here is this is ahead of the lifting of Title 42. Title 42 is still in place. It hasn't even happened yet. Exactly. 
As we're driving up, one of the things that stands out are the camps and the tarps. Here where I am in El Paso, this is the epicenter of the crisis right now. Some of them have their manila folders, which indicate that they've been processed by immigration. There are hundreds of migrants sleeping on the streets. Now the noise that you can hear, um, it's, it's a machine that's being used to clean the porta potties. They are desperate, they don't have money, they are hungry. Ah, disculpe, no, yo soy periodista. There's several migrants. As soon as we stopped here, we're asking if we had work for them. Um, I, of course, told them that we were journalists, but that's what happens here a lot. I talked to the priest who runs a migrant shelter near downtown El Paso, and he says he's never seen anything like this. About how many migrants are here at your shelter? We can only handle about 100, 120 to 130 a day, which is what we're doing. The, uh, out here, there's probably 500 or more people out in the streets. You see, because of that tension that I was talking about, because of that worry on the Mexican side, a lot of those migrants have gone impatient and they've crossed illegally. And here's the nuance. So the city of El Paso, for example, has declared a state of emergency that allows them to use resources to provide things like shelter, right? So then why are migrants sleeping out on the streets? Well, the, the city is funded with FEMA dollars to provide shelter for migrants who have been processed by immigration. And a lot of the migrants that are on the streets right now, not all of them, but a lot of them entered illegally because they went impatient. They didn't wait for the lifting of Title 42. And so now they're stuck around this church and they feel they can't leave and they have no money and they can't go work. Because they, they knew this thing was coming, but they didn't want to wait. So they came in illegally and now they're kind of stuck in this limbo. You're exactly right. Hello. Looking good. And you know what I see from walking in uh, some of these camps there's almost like a shadow economy. <laughs> I, I met this 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 man who's just the life of one of these camps. Retiring without money is not fun, so that's why he's here to work. He uh, started a barber shop, and he is just a bigger than life character, making everybody laugh in the camp. And I just interviewed him as he was cutting one man's hair. Why do you leave Venezuela? He says because of the economic crisis in his country. He says you work a lot, but you earn very little. And this is a recurring story that I've heard from so many Venezuelans. And, and the example that they always give me is, you know, I earned $5 a month or $10 a month or $20 a month in Venezuela. And a bag of rice will cost you $1.50. Wow. So that's why they say that so many are leaving these countries and just desperately trying to go to a place where they can earn a living wage, where they can feed their families. So later this week, once Title 42 does come to an end, 
what happens next? First of all, once Title 42 lifts, the biggest change here is that there will be legal consequences to entering the country illegally. And the reason why I highlight that is because under Title 42, migrants are returned back to Mexico very quickly, and there's no legal consequence. There's no stamp that says you've been deported out of the country, you entered illegally. And so once Title 42 lifts, individuals that enter the country illegally will no longer be processed under Title 42. They will be processed under something called Title 8. And that, in essence, what it means is immigration agents are going to determine, are these migrants admissible into the United States? Do they have legal standing to be in the U.S.? Or will they be deported? Will they be expelled? And I think this is the biggest misconception that I've heard from interviewing migrants on both sides of the border, quite frankly, and especially the ones that are still in Mexico. They think somehow that on May 11th, when Title 42 lifts, that the border is going to open, that they're just going to be able to enter and seek asylum. And that's really not the case, David. That is so not the case. Now, what they're hoping for, and a lot of them are hoping for, is that they will be able to walk to ports of entry and seek asylum or seek some type of relief. But what they don't know either is how many are going to try to do it at the same time. Will resources be overwhelmed? We don't know. You mentioned the idea of this policy being a pinata of sorts. And Republicans have used it to kind of attack the Biden administration, saying this is not a proper plan to secure the border. Well, now that it's going away, does the Biden administration have a plan for how to deal with whatever influx they may receive? Because it's not like this is a surprise. They've known about this date for quite a while. You're absolutely right. And the administration really has been preparing for this for more than a year now. And and to be fair, they have seen several changes and challenges. For example, the nationalities that are crossing over has changed. The Geographically, the flow has moved. But I think the easiest way for me to explain this is there are things that the administration is doing that you can actually physically see, and then there's things that you can't see. So, for example, the ones the things that you can physically see are holding facilities. So they've increased the number of facilities since 2021. They've added more air and transportation capabilities. They hired you know, civilians to process migrants so that Border Patrol agents can actually do their job of law enforcement on the border. The DOD is sending 1,500 personnel, things like that, right? Physically, things that you can see. And then there's things that you can't see. There's parole policies that allow them uh, to enter. There's a software um, application where people can make appointments. They're cracking down on smuggling. But here's the easiest way to explain what the, the administration is doing is they are expanding legal pathways to enter the United States, and they've built in legal consequences to deter illegal immigration. And so there's all of these parole programs, and a lot of them are based on nationality that migrants will be able to take advantage of so that they don't have to come to the border or use a smuggler or risk their life by going through the Darien Gap, they will be able to do that 
from their home country or from other regional processing centers that they plan to build. But you were saying at least some of the migrants have this misconception that on May 11th, the border will be wide open, which is not going to be the case. So are all of these preparations the Biden administration is making, all of this minutia in the policy, is that getting through to these migrants or do they still see the border as the place they need to be? You know, they still see the border as the place to go. And I think the biggest takeaway of all of these policies is that there's massive confusion. Um, first of all, your English is so good. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I've been covering this issue from both sides of the border. And I recently went to Juarez, which is across the border from El Paso. And I met migrants who had just hopped off the train. They call it the beast. And to be honest with you, uh, David, one of the things that, that stands out to you when you see these individuals, first of all, is their eyes are bloodshot and, and they have this pride of gripping to this beast, which is a cargo train that goes to Mexico and, and hopping off and being closer to their American dream. Now that you're in Juarez, do you feel so close? Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, I met one man there and, and his family. In the case of this individual, Hilario Garcia, he says that he was working construction on the 12th floor of a building and that he could see El Paso. And it was this incredible feeling for this man because it was seeing his dream, but not being able to cross over. I hear that a lot from migrants who can see the other side of the Rio Grande or can see the other side of the border wall, and they feel they're so close to their American dream, and they just have to wait. We've seen these surges at the border before, right? Like, these images are not necessarily new, but I know immigration experts and people that cover this really closely, like you, are saying, no, this is different. Why is that? In a nutshell, the difference is that this is mass migration from all over the world. And in prior surges, it was normally Mexicans or Central Americans who had direct family in the United States. And so what we saw on the ground back then was individuals who were boarding buses or planes and going directly to their families. And what's different this time is that this is a worldwide migration that is happening. And so they get to the border and they don't have money. They don't have family. They don't have connections in the United States. And so that's why a lot of them are stuck on the border. That's why a lot of them also are stuck here in El Paso is because they don't have a place to go. There's no support system that can take them in quickly. Exactly. One bus at a time. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is once again adding to New York City's crisis-level migrant numbers. We've been seeing over the last week two to three, two to hundred plus people coming to Chicago every single day. The reality is that the effects of Title 42 and the effects of immigration policy don't end on the border. 
they're really expanding into the interior of the country. And a lot of that might be driven by politics. Um, for example, Governor Greg Abbott continues to bus migrants to liberal cities like Chicago, like New York, uh, like D.C. We talked about that on this show last year. That's still happening? Yeah, yeah, it's still happening. And I think Governor Abbott uh, is reckless in his behavior by playing uh, politics with human beings. These politicians have been going back and forth, back and forth. Abbott saying that liberal cities should get a taste of what the border communities are experiencing here in Texas. And mayors in liberal cities complain about Abbott saying that, well, he doesn't coordinate with them. Yeah, well, they need to call Joe Biden. This is Joe Biden's fault and Joe Biden needs to fix it. Individuals who are kind of caught in the middle of all this are the migrants because a lot of them really have no idea what the political atmosphere is in the United States. All they learn when they get to the border, and, and I've talked to migrants who have hopped on some of these buses, is all they know is that they're getting a free ride to their destination city. They know that there's a bus that's going to Chicago. Are you going to Chicago? Yes. Oh, fantastic. I get to hop on this bus for free. They have no clue that they are political pawns in all of this. Rosa, thank you. Thank you for having me. One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paula Ortiz, Aaron Mathewson, and me, David Rind. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Fez Jamil is our senior producer. Greg Peppers is our supervising producer. And Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Quick favor to ask, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. It helps us out and follow the show so you get a new episode every week. We'll be back next Sunday. Talk to you then.